Hello? Is this the complaint line? Uh, yeah, this is Charlie, November Juliet 7, Victor, and I have a complaint. Dennis, I have a serious problem with uh, the release schedule you're following. I really need more episodes more often. Uh, okay, I'm sure you'll get on that quick. Thanks, buddy. Hello and welcome to Hamdom Thoughts, a podcast about ham radio, electronics, software, and tinkering. I'm your host, Dennis, FCC licensed amateur extra radio operator, call sign 8060M. In today's episode, episode 9, we talk with the man behind the Raspberry Pi tiny computers getting quickly set up in ham radio, KM4ACK Jason over in Tennessee. Jason is an avid YouTuber, sharing many things about digital operation and MCOM, but he's mostly known for his Build-A-Pi script, which has helped so many hams get on the air portable out in the field. Let's learn how he got this started and all about his other endeavors. Stay tuned. Hey, Jason. Great to have you here today. Hey, good morning. Good morning, Dennis. Thank you for having me on today. How you doing? I can't complain. Uh, it's been busy lately. Uh, a lot of revisions coming with Build-A-Pie and uh, a lot of other activities uh, going on in the background. Cool. So you're still working on it. I, I think it's, I thought as of like 3, 3.03, I think is it, it is. It was, that it is, was a complete, that's the latest right now. Yeah, I thought that was the complete package. I thought we were good to go, <laughs> but you're still working on it. That's great. But we'll talk about that in a little bit here. I just wanted to ask you, first of all, you tweeted this morning about the tornadoes in, in the area. That That's kind of scary. Well, uh, I guess if you're from other areas of the country, it is. It's not as scary when you grew up uh, in this part of the country where tornadoes are a you know, fairly regular occurrence. Mm -hmm. uh, we have severe weather outbreaks pretty routinely through the spring, summer, and even into the fall months uh, in, in the Southeast. So uh, it's not quite as scary. You know, I'm a lot okay. more petrified of uh, things in your area like earthquakes, because when an earthquake happens, it's a very widespread yeah. disaster area. Yeah. Uh, a tornado comes through and it's only a mile or two wide typically in yeah. uh you know in the destruction path so to me you live in a lot lot scarier position than i do yeah that's a, that's a good thing that i'll keep in mind for when we talk about emergency preparedness um i will hand it off to you though i want you to introduce yourself and you know tell us your story okay well, uh, I got my ham license in 2014, and then about a year later, upgraded to extra. What really drove me to get the ham license was a tornado, uh, and it was probably the closest I had ever come. But in uh, 2009, we had an EF4 tornado come through my hometown and came within about 1,000 yards of the house. Wow. Uh, there was 850 homes roughly destroyed during that uh, outbreak. And at the time, I didn't even own a generator. Mm. We, were at, we were out of power for three or four days. Cell phone communications were non-existent. Um, you hear a lot of people will tell you a text message will go through when uh, a phone call won't. That's not always the case. So I started looking at how I could prepare in case I was ever in that situation again. And uh, after I got some of the basics taken care of, bought a generator, had some food on hand that didn't require cooking, uh, I finally got around to looking at communications. And my brother-in-law is the one that actually introduced me to ham radio and was telling me how, you know, 
at the time he could communicate with nothing around him. And I was absolutely fascinated. So I went ahead and took my test. It was five years after the tornado when I finally took the test. But uh, once I got into ham radio, I was pretty much hooked. Wow. So it, it just, it took an actual potential disaster scenario to get the creative juices flowing and, and figuring out how to, how to prevent or at least prepare for something like this in the future. That's what first drug me into it. And I've always been fascinated with computers. Uh-huh. So it didn't take me long to hook up a old Windows PC to my ham radio. Mm-hmm. Uh, once I started learning about digital modes, PSK 31 was all the rage when I got my license. Yeah. And uh, that was the first mode that I started working with. And then uh, one thing led to another and I got rid of all the Windows computers and moved over to a Raspberry Pi. Oh, okay. Uh, you have quite an active YouTube channel and a lot of supporters as well. And it's, uh, it has all kinds of things in here. But again, you're, you're probably most known for your Build-A-Pi script. But I wanted to play a, a clip from one of your videos, your recent ones, about two weeks ago. So you're, you're activating a POTA station here. Hey, welcome back, guys. This is Jason, KM4ACK. Today, it's another Parks on the Air activation. Stick around, and we'll get right to it. A big shout out to these guys. They're my latest patrons over on Patreon. If you'd like to help support the channel, I'll leave a link to Patreon down in the description below. All right, so I just finished up filming the Pactena linked dipole review. And hey, it's one thing to uh, put an antenna on the air and- Okay, so in this video here, you're talking about the Pactena and your POTA activation, but why don't you give us kind of an idea of what your channel is all about and uh, what you're trying to do? Well, the channel is really about all things ham radio or most all things, but I primarily focus on anything to do with emergency communications. Mm -hmm. So I'm not a big FT8 fan because I can't exchange enough information with a contact should I need to pass an emergency message. Mm -hmm. Uh, I focus more on ways to get messages out of an area when there's nothing, uh, no cell phone coverage and no internet. So maybe that's a WinLink email that I can send to somebody. Maybe I'm using APRS to send a text message to my wife, uh, or maybe that's JSA call to send a message to another ham radio operator. But I, I like to really focus on being able to be completely independent of commercial power and the internet and cell phones. And so I imagine that includes all the supporting gear like solar and, and batteries, being able to charge your batteries off-grid and yeah. just being self-sufficient without having to rely on, on commercial power or commercial communications, right? Right. Uh, so I typically will carry a 30-watt uh, power film solar panel with me and a 10-amp-hour uh, lithium iron phosphate battery uh, in the pack with me. Uh, all of it fits into a fairly small and fairly lightweight uh, backpack. I think it weighs in right around 25 pounds with everything, including a couple of days of food in the backpack. Nice. It's just very comforting. I, I have my own kind of, I, I would call it a get home bag in the trunk of my car. But now that we're all stuck at home, it's not I, I probably need to revise it, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's just very comforting to have, you, you know, you have that ready to go and have these different communications methods all ready to, to deploy. And speak, speaking of deployment, you, you seem very practiced at all of these different things. I see videos about GS8 call, about, um, you know, APRS and packet. Uh, so Tell us a little bit more about all the different modes that you've tried and practiced and 
perhaps what your favorite one is among them? Uh, so primarily it's FL Digi and some of the modes that, uh, that go along with FL Digi, uh, then JS8 call, Winlink, and APRS. Of course, APRS, you're limited uh, to if you can get into a Digipeter or not, and that works just like two-meter simplex. Uh, so you have to be fairly close in uh, to be able to utilize that. Uh, but I guess my favorite all-around mode is going to be JS8 call and or Winlink. Uh, because you can be literally hundreds of miles from anything, any repeaters, any cell phone towers, and still be able to successfully pass a message. Yeah. What is your fascination with the Pi itself? Why, why do you love the Pi, the Raspberry Pi computer so much? All right. Well, I'm going to have to back up a little bit to my Windows days. Um, so I was an avid Windows user from 3.1 up until Windows 10, and I'm self-employed, ran my office on Windows 10, uh, or, or on Windows up until Windows 10. When I installed Windows 10, I had some major issues uh, with some other software that I was running that did not want to work on Windows. So I ended up getting rid of the Windows machine for my office and went to the Macintosh platform. Uh, which worked great for what we were doing. Well, in making that change, I, I became more and more frustrated with Windows and their update procedures and uh, issues that I was having uh, where Windows 10 didn't want to remember settings maybe from the last time I was using the radio. And I, I just, I, I had all I could take with Windows 10. So I picked up the Raspberry Pi to see if, it could be utilized to replace that Windows laptop for all of my ham radio stuff. And it, it was a bit frustrating in the beginning if you don't know anything about Linux. So <clears throat> I fought my way through that and kept after it until I finally got uh, the vast majority of everything that I was using on Windows working on the Raspberry Pi. And the Raspberry Pi is a great little device because a, it's inexpensive. Uh, for less than 50 bucks, you can grab a Raspberry Pi and uh, have it up and running. And B, if you do a lot of field operations, uh, field day, winter field day, POTA activations, things like that, and you compare a laptop to a Raspberry Pi, the power consumption is tremendously reduced when you move to the Raspberry Pi. I think it comes in somewhere around 300 milliamps from a 12 volt source to run the Raspberry Pi. So if you're relying strictly on battery and solar, you've got a huge advantage already by moving to the Raspberry Pi. Yeah, you could pretty uh, much leave it on and not really worry about it, right? Right. And other things, because uh, the Pi runs on an SD card, well, it makes it super easy to change out your quote unquote hard drive by pulling an SD card out and putting another one in. Uh, so literally carrying a spare hard drive uh, SD card with me cost me, I don't know, half an ounce of weight, maybe to have a complete backup sitting in my bag. Yeah, that's cool. You had a brilliant video that it didn't even occur to me, but once you posted it, I was like, of course. And that was put documents or important things, important files, configurations, backups, and documents on the SD card in your Pi. Because that's just a way to have a digital copy of a lot of important things that you need. Well, and it, it's a second copy. Uh, everybody today carries a cell phone. And we have a lot of that information on our cell phones. Let's take contacts, for instance. Um, Everybody's got their contacts on their phone. You want to dial somebody up, you open your contacts, you push a button and the phone starts ringing. How many phone numbers can you call off of the top of your head, even to the most important people in your life? Yeah, it's true. Me? <laughs> I, can... I, I, I know my wife's phone number. That is the only phone number I can call off the top of my head. Yeah, I, I probably have maybe five phone numbers that I can recall. So yeah. if you lose your cell phone, how are you going to get in touch with any of them? Or if you damage your cell phone or yeah. if your cell phone simply goes dead, 
having an extra copy of things like a contact list on the Raspberry Pi just gives you one more uh, one more copy of that information. Yeah. Tell us the background of Build a Pi. This this script is awesome. It saves people countless hours of configuration, setup, downloading, even Googling and looking for what they need because uh, there were some tools that you included in Build a Pie that I honestly didn't even know about. And I was like, oh, this exists? Wow, this is cool. <laughs> so tell us what your goal was when you set out to make this script. So Build a Pie was kind of born as the YouTube channel grew. Well, let me back up a little bit. Originally, I was doing individual tutorials. So how to get FL Digi installed on the Raspberry Pi. Then the next video might be how to get JSA Call installed on the Raspberry Pi. And these grew and grew. And as more people discovered my channel, they were honestly lost because they didn't know where to start. So I wanted to see if it was possible. And let me say, when I did my first YouTube video, I had never written a Bash script. And Bash <laughs> is what build a is written in. Yes. So it was kind of a personal challenge to me. Let's see if I can get just the basics written into a script that will just automatically install for somebody. That way, they at least have a foundation to build upon. Mm-hmm. And it kind of grew from there. I would get uh, various requests. Somebody would want to do something that I wasn't thinking about. Uh, the first version of Build-A-Pie, you could not update anything after you installed it. Mm-hmm. It was meant to literally be run once and you're done. That's the end of it. Uh, I left all of the updates for individual applications and things of that nature to the user. And I quickly found out they wanted something that would update their system for them. Yeah. I actually was okay with your early versions. I figured I would, I would run it once and just get the, the, the structure of what I needed into the pie with minimal hair pulling. And then from there, if I, if I did find newer versions, I would figure out, okay, this individual thing I'll figure out how to upgrade it myself. But then you started these iterations where you were actually allowing us to run it again and it would go through and actually update to latest versions. Yeah, and uh, I've got to say, this was the only good thing that I know of that came out of COVID-19. My day job was completely shut down like so many others when the pandemic hit. Uh, With no day job to attend to, I had a lot of time on my hands and I was either going to sit around and twiddle my thumbs or I was going to do something productive. And that's when I sat down and literally worked five and six days a week. I would spend seven, eight hours at a time in the shack writing the code, but I wanted to go back because I wasn't sure I would ever get that opportunity again to where I could solely focus on the code long enough to to create that large of an update. And I went back, I I was able to reuse some of the code, but I basically rewrote it from the ground up so that uh, going forward, we could run it multiple times. We could use Build-A-Pie to update uh, at least the majority of everything that's installed on the Pi and try to make it easier for the operator to, to stay up with the latest versions of individual pieces of software. Yeah. It's really cool. I I was pretty impressed when I started using three and you started introducing these these new steps and you know preserving the call sign so you don't have to enter it many times and and, and little tweaks like that that just made the process even easier. Uh, but I have a question. I mean, first of all, you did you open source this from the very beginning? Yes, it's always been open sourced. Yeah, so getting ideas, polling the community for how to improve it. Did, did you get any contributors to your open source project or was it mostly just, hey, can you code this? <laughs> <laughs> Lately, there's actually been some help coming in from a few contributors, but for the first, um, I don't know, probably year, I was the only one writing any code to it. Now, I got a lot of feedback 
things I, I learned a lot through the, the first version. I, I learned that why are we having to enter the call sign four times? Yeah. You know, and it was basically I had pulled a collection of old scripts that I had written and started c- compiling them into Buildapi. Yeah. Um, because Buildapi wasn't, it really was just a collection of other things that I had done up until that point. It was never its own individual project. Yeah. Uh, once, once I backed up and I rewrote the entire thing from the ground up t- to be its own individual project, then I could make the improvements on things like uh, not entering your call sign, but one time. Yeah. And you give me the impression that you've had no programming experience prior to this, or the, ha- did you did you code in other languages before? The only uh, coding I have ever done and been, I, I guess, formally trained in was when I was in high school. I wrote, uh, I, I took a class where we did basic, and then I did another class uh, the following semester where we wrote in Pascal. So okay. that'll definitely uh, date me <laughs> to some extent. Yeah, I, I can relate. Very similar experiences for me. Pascal, but, I remember, yes. But that's the only, uh, you know, quote unquote, formal training I've ever had. Uh, I've literally learned bash as I went along. And now I have had some guys come in uh, maybe to the comment section or maybe a direct email and go, man, you can't do this. This is a huge problem. This is going to open up, (laughs) you know, this, this and this. And I go, oh. Um, well, I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, th- I've had a lot of good. Uh, I've had a lot of good feedback in that regard, where they weren't necessarily writing the code, but they at least pointed out what I was doing wrong, and often showed me a better way to do something. Yeah, that's great. That's that's the cool thing about sharing your designs and your your code, is that it gets some good scrutiny from people who have worked in it already. Absolutely. Do you feel like you're missing out on any apps since you're going Linux versus, you know how Windows is basically the ham radio operator's operating system. Do you feel that there are certain things you wish you could do within the Pi realm that that you can do in the Windows machine? Really, the only thing I have found is uh, when it comes to programming some radios. A lot of the radios I own, I own a Yezu 857. I can program it with Chirp. Chirp runs beautifully on the Raspberry Pi. Uh, the Balfangs, you can program with Chirp. But I recently picked up a Yezu FT3 DR, and you have to use either RT systems or oh, yeah. Yezus on software to yeah. program it. Both of those are only available in the Windows world. So, so in that particular free. case, yeah, it's a bit of a pain. Uh, but that's about the only thing I've I would like to be able to do on the Pi that I can't right now. Yeah, that would be really cool field field programming of your HTs through a Pi. I wish that could come to pass. Well, you can, like I said, with some of them. Uh, so I've, I run an eight fifty seven in my Jeep, and if I need to program a repeater into it, I can literally uh, VNC into the Pi because it's already connected to yeah. the radio. And I can add that real quick and just upload the data to the radio. Yeah. Um, but s- some radios are supported by Chirp and some are not. Yeah. So I guess the burden's on the Chirp side. Yes. <laughs> you, you're not figuring this out. Let's hope the Chirp people no, catch up. <laughs> no, I, I would have no idea even where to start to uh, write a programming uh, programming application for the Yezu radios. All right. I think uh, let's take a quick break here for some sponsor messages, and then we'll come right back. All right, we are back. And uh, talking with KM4ACK here, Jason, out in Tennessee. And I wanted to circle back and talk a little bit about your MCOM preparations. We have your, you you talked a little bit about your go bag and your pack just being ready 
Uh, tell us a little bit about your home MCOM setup. So my home station is almost non-existent, uh, to be honest with you. And one mm -hmm. of the problems I have is I live in a cul-de-sac and I am surrounded by a truckload of RF noise on every side. Mm, okay. Uh, my noise level at home never gets below an S7. Uh, so it, and it's kind of one of the things that drove me to work more portable, uh, was because my, my noise level is so horrible at home. Um, so I, I really have my gear set up at home designed so that it can be dropped into my go bag and I can walk out the door with it. Very interesting. Uh, literally I did a video back around field day. It was like, how fast can you get ready, mm -hmm. you know, to be, to deploy, and you can go back on the channel and take a look at that. I don't remember the exact time, but it takes uh, maybe 10 minutes, 15 minutes to get everything packed up into the backpack and loaded into the Jeep. So your, your setup is basically one shack. You, what you use out in the field is what you're using at home. For the most part, the differences would be uh, there is an antenna that is always installed uh, at home. Mm -hmm. uh, that's my primary antenna in the shack. And my power supply uh, never leaves the shack. I disconnect from the power supply because I know that I'm going to be running on battery and solar when I go into the field. Mm -hmm. So I, I have certain antennas that I'm going to carry portable with me, but... The radio and the Raspberry Pi and the necessary accessories all go from my desk in my shack into the bag every time I'm ready to leave. Do you have like, a, is it a primary setup or do you have just multiple pies ready to go? A lot of backups. Uh, I mean, I, yeah, I imagine if you're developing for these things that you probably have different test environments and all that kind of stuff. And almost like a software development shop you have your your staging one and then you have your actual production one that you take out <laughs> yeah so that that's kind of a warning i give to anybody that wants to get into raspberry pies uh it's addictive and if you own one it will be less than a year and you'll have three or four on hand to play with yeah uh and you'll find various uses for each of the pies but yeah I have probably nine Raspberry Pis oh, laying wow. around in the shack <laughs> uh, that that all do different things. I mean, one of them just runs a PBX server and it never leaves the shack. Mm -hmm. um, and others are primary, but I have one for each radio. Mm -hmm. So because of different configurations, uh, the one that's used with the Yezu 891 has to be, uh, the configuration has to be changed before you could use it with the 857. Pies are so inexpensive, it's easy enough just to have two of them. Yeah, definitely. So I have, um, you know, three primary pies, one for the 857 in my mobile, one for the 857 in my shack, and one for my 891 in my shack. And so, and then the just depending on which radio I want to take portable today, I'm going to grab that radio and... Raspberry Pi. Mm -hmm. What what rigs do you have? Uh, the eight the eight fifty seven. I own two of those, and the Yezu eight ninety one are my my three primary uh, HF radios. So it's it's uh, QRO capable. Yes, all three of them. I'm not a Q, QRP guy. Mm -hmm. um, it it doesn't cost you that much more in weight to have a hundred watt radio with you. Yeah. And I can always cut it down to five watts and conserve my battery. Yeah. yeah. But I can't take a, uh, say, a KX3 and turn it up to 100 watts. Yeah. This is a so, very dis divisive topic. So let's get some controversy into the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, but it, it, I, is, it is a very controversial topic. Uh, and, it, you know, whichever way you want to go, I'm okay with that. Uh, because you do obviously save weight going with the, uh, something like the KX3 or the um, Zygu 5105 or yeah. something like that. Uh, you do save some weight. You definitely are going to uh, draw less power in a battery environment. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't know. I just I never could bite the bullet for for a QRP rig. Yeah. Um, 
I know you don't lose that much. I can't remember exactly what the, the DB difference is uh, because we do have to double power to, you know, to basically gain an extra DB. Yeah. But I, I just, I don't know. I can't limit myself to a five watt radio. I got seriously into HF right around 2017. And all I knew at the time was that the 857 was the radio. And of course, since then, so many other great rigs have come out and become popular, but I love the 857. I can hit repeaters with it and at the same time switch over and do any digital mode or HF, you know, CW, anything. It's just that you don't get that beautiful pan adapter or any of these cool new features that we're seeing nowadays. And also the receiver, if you compare it to like the 891 or, or other SDR radios, it, it's, um, you get a lot of noise on those things. <laughs> oh, hands down, the 891 is a better receiver. Um, if anybody from Yezu's listening to this, I'm still mad at you uh, <laughs> for not including 2 meter and yes, 440 yes. in the 891. That would have been really good. I'd have one right now if that was the case. I, I would probably buy two of them. <laughs> If, if that was the case, um, I, I keep hoping that they're going to come out with something to, re, you know, they did discontinue the 857. I believe it was in December. And I keep hoping that they've got something on the horizon that's going to be a, a true replacement for the 857 wow. in the sense that it's all mode, all band radio. I hope so. I, I always learn something on these interviews. I didn't know that the 857 was discontinued. I thought it was still... Alive and well. No, I think it was December that uh, they that Yezu discontinued the 857. All now right. the eight, what is it? The 818, I believe, mm -hmm. is their uh, QRP radio. It's still in production, yeah. but they did discontinue the 857. Cool. I have a collector's radio now. I, it's not a <laughs> it's not a mainstream radio anymore. <laughs> so, what do you have coming up? What are some of your exciting plans coming up? Uh, with Build-A-Pie, we're going to be adding a, a few requested features. Uh, one of the big ones is TQSL, so that guys who use Logbook of the World can interface with that. I'm not a Logbook of the World user, but uh, I do have TQSL coming up in 3.0.4. So that's probably uh, one of the bigger things that uh, a lot of demand uh, I've seen a lot of demand for. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we've got some other things, uh, some other applications that are coming. Xlog is coming. Um, if you work with JSA Call, uh, there's a guy out of Great Britain, Mark, M0IAX. He's just done an update to his software, so we're going to be pulling his latest uh, revision of his software into the next, uh, the next version of Build-A-Pi as well. Is this going to be version 4, or is it? 3.0.4. Oh, 3.0.4. Okay. Yep. It's going to be a minor revision where we add a few things to it. Mm -hmm. um, and then I'm still working with this Pi Zero project that I've started recently. I don't know if you've seen that or not. Yes. I, I saw a few videos there about Pi Zero. So I'm trying to just build a system for my little two meter kit to where I can expand it to be able to work at a minimum wind link um, when I just have the little small two meter kit with me uh, that, it, that includes an HT. Um, I'm not sure what else we can do with a Pi Zero. I've got a few ideas, but you are limited with the computing capacity of the Zero. Yeah. I imagine a lot of command line type tools, but I can't think of any major graphics intensive type radio application that would work very well in that just as a trial i actually did load a pretty much a full-blown version of the raspbian os onto a zero and it will boot um but it is frustratingly slow <laughs> it takes like 10 minutes to get to the opening <laughs> desktop <laughs> yeah um and so and i didn't even try any you know real applications like jsa call or fl digi yeah. Um, just getting it to boot was, uh, I, I realized it was going to be bad. So I went back to the, the light version, which is command line only, and we'll see. I don't know where that project will take me. 
I didn't know where build a pie was going to take us in the beginning either. Yeah. It's really blown up. <laughs> yeah. A, so you, you, you have to start and now. the community will ask for things and then we'll see if we can figure out how to put it on the, on the pie zero. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really ask you this. Your main interface to your Raspberry Pis is, I assume, a, a tablet, like through VNC and Bluetooth yes. or Wi-Fi. I'm not too practiced in this because I tend to plug in a HDMI cable to my Pis, and I haven't really taken them out on the field. And if ever I was, I think I've used a Surface Pro, which kind of defeats the purpose because then I have a Windows computer with me in the field. <laughs> right. <laughs> So with Build-A-Pi, you have the option to install a hotspot. Now, let's don't confuse that with something like a DMR hotspot. Uh, this hotspot, basically, the, the Raspberry Pi will serve up a Wi-Fi signal that you can connect to, just like you walk into your home and you select your uh, wireless network that you want to connect to and you enter the password. So the Pi generates that when you're in the field. You take whatever wireless device you want to use, whether it's your cell phone, your tablet, or uh, another laptop, and you connect to the Pi's Wi-Fi signal. Once you're connected, then you open a VNC application and you VNC into the Raspberry Pi. At that point, you're presented with the Raspberry Pi's desktop interface. And then you can go from there. So you're so yeah. I use a tablet most of the time in the field. Uh, so I'll connect to the Pi, open VNC on the tablet, and then I'm looking at the Raspberry Pi's desktop. I can uh, so I've got the its screen on my tablet, and then I can use the keyboard and mouse with the uh, or from the tablet as well. What what tablets do you recommend for this kind of use? Do you have you know any? Uh, so I have a first generation iPad mini and the only reason I'm using it is because it was laying in the drawer unused. Uh, it's really too old to use anything. Apple doesn't support it anymore. Mm. So I've managed to get VNC loaded onto it. Uh, I can't even update that application. Uh, that iPad's so old, it won't support the newer versions of VNC, but, uh, that's the one that I've used, uh, just because it was laying around. And I like to recycle things. I mean, why throw out something that still works if you can repurpose it and use it for something else? Yeah. I, I've uh, seen a lot of Android tablets in use. I know that Julian OH8STN uses that. And I, I've just never felt motivated to get an Android tablet. I, I don't know why. There's just something that's holding me back from doing that. Well, uh, a, a friend of mine loaned me a Fire tablet. So that's the Amazon Android tablet. Uh, it was a 10-inch version, and I thought, okay, let's see if we can get uh, VNC installed and utilize it. And it works great. Uh, the only thing you have to tolerate is the Amazon, uh, I call it bloatware. Uh, mm -hmm. The additional stuff that Amazon puts on there is a bit frustrating uh, being presented with an ad every time you turn the iPad on or the uh, the Fire Tablet on. Is it pretty responsive, though? It's pretty fast? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, I really noticed no difference between the older iPad and that Fire Tablet. And the iPad only has, I think that's a 7-inch screen. So moving to a 10-inch screen is a, a, is yeah. a nice upgrade. Yeah, that, that would be nice out in the field. And I guess... If I were looking for a dedicated field tablet, I would think about things like water resistance, you know, just things in general that you're out in the elements, probably. An iPad is probably a good choice. I'm not sure. I'm not familiar enough with all the Android tablets to know how well they endure the elements. The biggest thing I would be concerned with is battery life. Oh, and yeah. I would put that yes. ahead of weather resistance. Mm-hmm. Because the 891 is not weather resistant. Oh, yeah, that's true. The rest of your gear needs to match. <laughs> so so <laughs> if, if we don't make everything weather resistant, having one component that uh, can be submersible doesn't do us a whole lot of good. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so I'm going to plan to have shelter 
if I'm going out on an activation mm-hmm. uh, or at least be able to quickly get it back into the backpack, which I do have a rain cover for. Okay. Speaking of activations, you, you kind of strike me as someone who's very practical. You, you're driven by, I guess, an, the MCOM undercurrent there. And a lot of your videos show just preparation and practice in different modes and how to use them efficiently. Uh, but do you contest? Are you into just getting into various activities with the you know, general ham population? Not uh, contesting, not unless you count uh, parks on the air activations. And uh, Mike, K8MRD, is the one that uh, made that look incredibly fun. And I, I did it the first time, and I was yes. instantly hooked on parks on the air. Yeah. Um, but just getting out, that's, that's kind of the cool thing about this, is every time you go out, uh, whether it's parks on the air or field day or, or whatever it happens to be, you're practicing that skill set that will make you more prepared. And it's not like it's a, a mundane exercise. I get to go out and have fun with a ham radio. And at the same time, I'm sharpening that skill set and making sure that I know exactly how to do certain things. Yeah. And it is a perishable skill. It has to Absolutely. be constantly sharpened because I, I know that I, I'd be very quick on the draw when it comes to setting up uh, like my mag, uh, my mag loop antenna in, in 2018. But then I tried to pull that thing out of storage recently and I had to basically go back on the internet and figure things out again <laughs> because I, I was like, oh, I, I'm rusty here. And so, it, yeah, it is definitely very important. And I think that's also a good reason to contest. Personally, it's it's more of practice with your setup. Absolutely. And, you know, I try to do different things so that we kind of keep sharp on, on everything. So parks on the air, I always utilize voice. Uh, I don't ever try to yeah. do a digital parks on the air activation. So that uh, helps keep that set of skills sharp. But then at the same time, I want to work digital uh more a lot of times when I'm out as well. Uh, and even if I go out and let's say I'm going to do JSA call uh, all day today, I'm still going to make at least one Windlink connection while I'm out there. Okay. That verifies everything is still working. Uh, it verifies, can I get into the same gateway that I utilized last time? And I just think it's important to, to make sure that you can accomplish that more or less every single time you go out. Yep. Wow. Uh, true story. I got invited over to East Tennessee. Uh, Wachese Lookout was the name of the place. It's an hour Jeep ride up to the top of this, uh, this lookout. And we went up there literally just to play radio one day. It was on a Saturday. I get up there and there is no cell phone coverage whatsoever. Hmm. Perfect scenario. But I told my wife I would let her know when I arrived safely. (laughs) Okay. So so I fired up uh, the Raspberry Pi and tuned the radio over to the APRS frequency. Sure enough, I can get into a gateway. So I'm sitting four hours from home with no cell phone coverage and having a text message conversation with my wife back in Middle Tennessee. Through RF. That's that's great. completely RF on my side. Of course, it hits uh, a gateway that's connected to the internet, yeah. uh, you know, but from my, from my point of view, where I was located, no cell phones, no internet. Mm-hmm. And we were still able to pass that message. So what are your feelings about some of these satellite communicators that, that like soda hams carry around? And I mean, is that part of your arsenal or are you more relying on existing ham technologies? Uh, I rely more on the existing ham technologies. Now, are you referring to the uh, satellite, uh, like emergency beacons where you can activate them? Uh, More of the, like there's the Garmin inReach, which allows you to talk through satellites to SMS or in the event that you're 
injured, send out an SOS, those kind of things. It's a two-way communicator for, for satellites. But the, I think the blocking thing for many is the subscriptions that you need to have the satellite service. Right. Um, those are great devices. If I was going to be really deep into the backcountry, um, I would probably look at one of those. It's just one extra layer of safety and security uh, that you can put in place. And if, if you're deep enough into the back, you know, into the back country, it's probably a wise investment. Yeah. I tell hikers that I know, please get one of these if you're going to be out of cell range, because you never know what can happen out there. My son recently moved to Colorado uh, about a year ago, and he's been out, uh, of course, in brand new country exploring the outdoors. He loves to hike him and his wife, but I try to remind them, you need to send out uh, some data before you go, whether it's to me and your mom or whether it's to your friend, where you're going for the day, what time to expect you back. Because at least then somebody knows that you didn't show back up and we should start looking for you. Yeah. Yeah, always leave a message of what, what your plans are. I also wanted to ask you about your antenna itself. What do you normally put out there? Is it just inverted V, dipole, fishing pole? I mean, what are your setups for getting on mm -hmm. the air? I've got a couple of different ones uh, that I like. Recently, I was sent, uh, the Pactena sent me a linked dipole, and that is a very small, compact package, very lightweight, and it was very capable for 20 and 40 meters when I uh, did the last POTA activation. My all-time favorite antenna is made by a company called TN07.com. And it's their IMD 109. It's an in-fed antenna and that will work uh, 10 through 80 meters with no tuner. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's impressive. So being able to work with no tuner is important to me. Uh, it's one, not having a tuner means that's one less piece of gear I got to carry and one less point of failure in, in my setup. Uh, and Yezu is notorious for not including tuners in their radios. So I prefer to try to find antennas that don't require a tuner. Uh, so yeah, the TN07 is probably my all-time favorite, the link dipole. And then I have done some uh, 49 to 1 in-fed half waves that I've homebrewed. Nice. I'll look up the TN07 and include a link in the show notes for people to find it. That'd be great. All right. Any advice you have for people in a ham radio who want to do what you're doing or any other things you want to mention? If you want to do uh, getting into this hobby, there's so many different areas that you can get into. Some guys just like to chase DX. Uh, some guys just want to do parks on the air activations you kind of have to look at what you want to do and then try to build your gear around that particular setup um, or, or that particular interest, I guess I should say. A contester would never be caught dead with the antennas that I use. <laughs> they're, you know, they're, they're great antennas, but not for that particular scenario. Mm -hmm. uh, at the same time, I can't take a contester's antenna and put it in my backpack. Yeah. I probably can't put it in my Jeep. So <laughs> um, you've got to really look at kind of what you really enjoy doing and, and build your gear around that. Yeah. I, I, I hear a lot of questions like that to some of the more public hams, such as Josh and, and others that they'll, they'll say, what, what rig should I get? What antenna should I get? And, <laughs> The question is in, inevitably about what do you intend to do and kind of pattern it around that and try not to do everything with one piece of gear, but try to break it up into, you know, practical goals of what you're intending to do initially. And then you'll grow from there. Right. And I learned that the hard way, of course. And of course, the 857 is, is deceptively 
capable because it has so many different features and modes that I thought I was like, okay, this is all I need. Just one rig. and I'm good. But it turns out that there are many other things and many other facets that I'd like to uh, explore. So yeah, that's, that's good. I mean, I'm thinking of things like hex beams and uh, I just talked with K zero EAP Eric, and he has the alpha antenna FMJ. And he said, if you want to take that up a mountain, that would be terrible. <laughs> Cause it's super heavy, really big, but it's a great antenna. All right. Well, I think uh, that's it. Unless there's anything else you wanted to mention. No, I do greatly appreciate you uh, having me on here today, Dennis. Well, thank you. Um, and be on behalf of, the portable field operation ham community. I also want to thank you for starting build a pie, getting that bit of inspiration to start hacking a bash script together. And it's really morphed into something awesome. And I really look forward to how it develops, but it's, it's been a real help to so many people. I think you probably know that from feedback you're getting and all the popularity of it. Thank you for that because I use it, I think of it whenever I get a new pie. I just hope it takes some of the mystery out of Linux and attracts more ham radio operators to the Linux platform. Yeah, it's great. Okay, well, thank you. And again, your um, channel, I'll link in the show notes. I'll also link your Twitter account. And uh, thanks. <laughs> great. Thanks again, Dennis. <laughs> been listening to Hamden Thoughts by 8060M. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll catch you again soon. Hey, good afternoon, Dennis. Dan and 9BAV. Haven't talked to you in a while. Just thought I'd jump on here and tell you I really enjoy your podcast. I, I recorded a message a few minutes ago and I got long-winded. I have that problem. <laughs> I wasn't looking at the timer on the screen, I guess. But anyway, I, I really enjoy it. I'm almost caught up. I got three more to go. I'm just getting ready to listen to the podcast where you're talking to W6RIP. And, uh, and enjoy following all these guys and watching their YouTube videos. And I, I should start some, I should do a YouTube video sometime. I do a little QRP off the motorcycle and, and, uh, but it, it, I find it cumbersome behind the camera. So anyway, I'll, uh, I'll let you go. 73 N9 BAV. Talk to you later.